Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Exponential Minds podcast. My name's Nicholas Badminton. I'm a futurist and I help my clients look out 5, 10, 20 plus years into the future so they can start doing better strategic planning today. And I'm incredibly excited and we've been trying to set this up for a while to, uh, to chat to Dr. Jake Soteriadis. And, uh, and, and Jake is a global futurist and expert in intelligence and geopolitical risk. He's the founder of the United States Air Force's Strategic Foresight and Futures Team, and they advise senior leaders in building anticipatory thinking and breakthrough innovations. He holds a PhD in political science and geopolitical futures from the University of Hawaii at Manoa, a Master of Arts in International Affairs from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, a Master of Philosophy in Military Strategy from Operational Art and Science from the Air Command and Staff College, and a Bachelor of Arts in International Studies from Norwich University in the UK. Uh, his, his work as a thought leader has been featured internationally in many places, including the National Interest, The Diplomat, Defense News, uh, China-US Focus, uh, MIT Political Science News, The Futurist Institute, um, a whole bunch of different places uh, I could go on. And uh, Jake, I'm really excited to have you on the on the uh, podcast today, and I think we've got a lot to talk about. Nick, it's great to be with you, and I'm uh, happy to be having this conversation. Yeah, perfect. As we do with every single episode, you know, just really like to talk about that origin story. How did you come to work in the foresight and futures discipline? It's funny, Nick. You know, I, I sometimes get asked that question, and I feel like I almost sort of stumbled into it without even realizing it, and I was. Now, looking back, I think I was almost doing, if you will, futurist kind of things um, without knowing I was doing them. So, right. you know, from a, a really young age, even as a, as a child, I had a real intense interest in history. And so I would go and I would just get my hands on as many books as I could get on military history and all sorts of things. And I think my parents were sort of like, well, what do we have our hands on here? But uh, as I got older and joined the Air Force and got into intelligence, uh, it just seemed a very natural combination uh, where I already had this interest. I had studied abroad. I had studied in Germany. So I had this idea of the world being different and people thinking differently. But I was always interested in sort of the why and the how. And, you know, I had the chance to really explore those questions more from a, a national security perspective throughout my career. And, you know, where it all came together for me uh, was sort of this experience of attending uh, the University of Hawaii at Manoa, where I was a research fellow at the Center for Future Studies. And right. it was this perfect combination of all of my life's experiences, personal and professional, uh, coming together and then really seeing, wow, when you add this methodology and this futurist way of thinking, it's such a powerful tool. Uh, and you just never think the same way again. Yeah, and Manoa is legendary in the foresight community as well. Yeah, uh, you've got James Dator and Dator's Four Futures. I speak about that on a daily basis as well. So, I mean, what was that like there? I mean, it's almost like ground zeros for so much of the modern sort of futures thinking. It, it really is. I mean, I'll just tell you what. I mean, 
besides the fact that it's probably the most beautiful university campus in the world. <laughs> so, uh, you know, my, it was quite therapeutic leaving my office to go get a coffee and walk around, but it really is what you described. I mean, it's, um, it's, the, it's, it's, it's ground zero for futures space thinking. Um, uh, Dr. Dater has since um, retired as, as, uh, as, as chair of the futures uh, center. However, uh, Dr. Jairus Grove, who is a brilliant mind, brilliant political scientist and futurist, uh, is uh, is quite an amazing successor. Uh, he was actually my dissertation advisor. I learned so much from him. But it's also the alumni network that you know from the Manoa School, but also just all of the events that are going on and all of the external uh, actors that are coming in that want to learn from Manoa. So being able to be a research fellow and interact with some of the clients and you know foreign governments and um, you know commercial sector spaces and. There's just there's such a great network there to learn from, and so I, I learned a lot from just being with my cohort, and then also from the the brilliant faculty that are there. Right, and and that's so important, especially in education, to really have you know this progressive thinkers, but like also that network as well. That's the the network capital that we're building. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about um, sort of your journey into um, the United States Air Force and and how that sort of took you along into the establishment of the Strategic Foresight and Futures team there? Absolutely. Well, when I was 17, um, I got a scholarship to go and study for a year, uh, for, study German language and spend my, my last year of high school in Germany. And that year, I, I, refer, I reference it a lot because it really was, for me, a very eye-opening experience. I traveled all over Europe and I lived in a small village that you know eight years before was under the iron curtain under right under under the, the, the east block oh wow so yeah. talking with people in that village and just hearing their perspectives on the world and all these kinds of things it just gave me this intense curiosity to learn more and really be this global citizen and so getting into the air force and getting into military intelligence I, you know all of a sudden i had all this access and you know these um not only just to military hardware and analytical type thinking, but also just to travel and, you know, through my, my, my military service and deployments to the Middle East and service and, uh, you know, in Europe and traveling to all these different places, um, it all came together for me. And um, I just, I always knew from the time I was a little kid that I wanted to be in the military. I always wanted to serve my country. Uh, my, I come from a, a family of immigrants. My family right. immigrated from Greece. And, uh, you know, I always grew up hearing, you know, God bless America, this country has given us so much. So I wanted to just serve and give something back. Um, sure. but, but the futurist piece for me is so important because when we're dealing with things as complicated as national security, I feel like sometimes it's just easy to fall into the status quo and that groupthink. And uh, I've never been a groupthink kind of person. And so when I came into this uh, futurist community and way of thinking, and then I was able to apply it, to the work that I'm doing. I mean, it was just, it was amazing. And um, it's, you know, taking all of those sort of the bread and butter skill sets you have of traditional analysis, but then you sort of turn those up on steroids and you say, now here are some things that we haven't thought about. And here's, frankly, we can't afford not to do this. Yeah. And, you know, if we look at the history of Foresight as well, Rand Corporation very famously was looking at lots of like nuclear scenarios and, and really scenario planning has been uh, a major pillar of sort of military intelligence and, and also, you know, warfare um, way before it really became something within sort of the corporate organizational culture as well. So it's really interesting to see that. I actually read a lot of uh, papers from the uh, U.S. Army War College, uh, from RAND. I, I read uh, a, a lot of stuff from the D Department of Defense. Uh, if, you're, if you're listening to the podcast, 
go out and look for these papers because they really get down into the, the the weeds of like what's coming and what's happening. And because military is so well funded, they're sort of ahead of the game. And you know, DARPA and these people, I mean, they're, they're less futurists and they're the people that are building the future, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, there's a lot, and this is something too that I think is really important when we talk about getting out there and reading things. You know, there's a great, um, I think, effect uh, of, of what's happened in the pandemic in the, in the defense community where there's a realization we have to do a lot more work in open source, in unclassified areas. Right. And one of the reasons I pushed so hard to get our futures report that we put out last June in unclassified space and, and frankly open source out to the public was because you've got to foster this kind of diversity and thinking and build, harness that network that you have uh, to be able to get the best and brightest minds on these really difficult issues. Um, and when you're talking about things that are 20, 25, 30 years out, um, you don't necessarily need to have you know, exquisite classified sources of information. You can, you can do a lot in the unclassified realm. And I think that's a positive development that we're going to see more of in the future. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the unclassified realm. It, it I mean, it, it's it's actually way more interesting than anything else. To be honest, I mean, we're not even going to talk about the classified realm here. So, it, it what what's really interesting with this as well that you, you talk about open source work, and I, I've I've published on my website uh, a couple of the different Air, uh, U.S. Air Force uh, papers as well. I I find them to be hugely interesting. But when, when you're thinking about this in a sort of a military or a, a global geopolitical context as well, we're not talking five years or 10 years, right? We're talking, we're talking further futures. Oh, absolutely. And it's so easy to get caught up in the tyranny of the now. And unfortunately, you know, this is just the reality of the game sometimes, especially in Washington, D.C., where people are taught to think in, in terms of winning short-term budget battles. Right. So, you know, if we've gotten, you know, three or four billion more than our sister service, or if we got this program funded and that one didn't get funded, um, you know, this is not to disparage the important programmatic work that's being done, but I think it's easy to sort of lose some of that perspective. And I'll give you an example of that. I mean, when I came to the Pentagon the first time, as a, you know, a young captain in 2007, the conventional line, the way of thinking was, well, great power competition is over. Right. You know, we need to focus on, on terrorist groups and all this kind of stuff. And again, not that, that there weren't intelligent people saying this, but it's just easy to get lost in the immediacy of right now. And that's why I think that the value prop for futures thinking is actually, if you only look at what's directly in front of your face, and you're not doing that difficult and sometimes uncomfortable work of thinking about how the future can defy your expected probabilities, you're going to get surprised. Yeah. I mean, are we are we looking at like are you are you doing like thinking on like the fifty to a hundred year sort of horizons, or you know, or or is it sort of a slightly shorter term than that, Jake? Well, it really depends on I think the customer and the product and the focus area. So the answer right. is yes, but with shades of gray in the sure. sense that. Um, there, yeah, there are certain analyses that I mean, when we, when we talk about something like, um, you know, getting towards a sort of a general artificial intelligence, right? When we, when we right. think about, right, obviously singularity type moment, when we talk about things like, um, you know, the future power of quantum processors, right? And all of these breakthroughs that are honestly going to, they're going to change every facet of our lives. Um, yeah, you've got to start thinking about now, and, and especially for things like anticipatory governance, you know, you've got to start thinking now about putting policies in place. Uh, or, or building the skill sets that you're going to need 
when these things actually come online. And you know, that's hard to do. It's hard to, so the question then becomes, well, how do you do that? How do you even, are you asking the right questions? Um, and that's where I think the future's way of thinking and strategic foresight is so important because we, we, we're not trying to find a definitive answer. Yeah. We're not trying to predict something to say, well, we got it right. We're trying to give people a way of disrupting how they think so that they can better prepare for the unexpected. Yeah. And we're not trying to shatter dreams or anything, right? But like the, the, the reality can be kind of tough for some people. I'm speaking to a city uh, as part of a city council meeting and the citizens of Dublin, Ohio. And uh, a couple of years ago, they had Virgin Hyperloop turn up and there's this big uh, there's this big buzz and excitement of of connecting, you know, Columbus, Ohio, with Chicago, and you know, Hyperloop and whatever. And it's like this is all great, but I'm really reticent to to come in and say this is the future. That's a lot of pipe that you got to lay across the United States. <laughs> and it's like, well, if that was an oil pipeline, what would be happening? Well, it's the infrastructure that's an issue because of the land it has to travel over and so on and so forth, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of inconvenience when you start looking out at the real implications and whatever, and that glitter and lure of, of the shiny technological futures that, that we're sold by many people and Virgin are incredibly good at that. Uh, sometimes sort of, you know, sort of uh, it dulls a little bit as well, right? Yeah, it does. And I think, so that, that's a great example because you bring up a point that I like to make, which is that it's dangerous to equate the future only with technological developments. Right. And, and, but that's the natural inclination that we all have. And I think especially, you know, in places like government, uh, private sector as well, but in particular in government, you know, that's, that's how we've done things. And so when you, when you, attach expectations of what the future could be like uh, exclusively along a technological basis. Uh, that's also, I think, uh, a mistake and a fallacy. And we've got to think differently, not only about the disruptive tech, but also, you know, what's our cognitive operating system going to look like? And how do we build that? How do we nurture that? Uh, how do we pull out that innate ability that every person has to imagine a different future? Yeah, I always say, you know, stand in the middle. I, I was doing a, a, a keynote Q&A yesterday and I was like, oh, you really want to think about futures? Stand in the middle of the city where you live and look around you and then ask yourself the question, you know, what, what's this going to look like in a thousand years? And it's wild because let's just assume that none of this is here. Okay, but what's it going to be like? I mean, we're caught, today we're caught in this industrial complex, and it is complex. It's a web. It's got us held tight, fossil fuels and old ways of transportation. I live in Toronto, and we've got a, a streetcar system. And once in a while, at the end of the street, you see a driver jump out with a crowbar to change the gauge so he can turn left. So we're, kind of, <laughs> we're caught in this old world. And, and to your point about history, it's fascinating to me of how we came to be here. But as we look into those futures, you know, really suspending that that disbelief is is really important, right? It is, and that's where I think we can do a better job collectively on harnessing things like the metaverse right now. Right. Looking at areas like virtual reality, and then you know, developments in augmented reality, and what those are going to do for us. Because I'll tell you what, I think that possibility of of really showing somebody and giving them an immersive experience to live in that alternative future is just so powerful. Uh, you know, we were able to do that just this fall where we actually produced the first ever virtual reality futures report for the Air Force. Right. And I'll tell you how much of a game changer that was when you could see senior decision makers 
get into that experience, sort of live those scenarios. And, you know, it's one thing to read a well-written report and sort of imagine scenarios, but it's another thing entirely when you're actually inside the scenarios and you can see, okay, here are the winners, here are the losers. Here's how I might make a decision differently. And so you know, I think that's still very much, uh, we're at the tip of the iceberg. That needs to become much more of the norm instead of the exception. Um, so I, I'm excited for the potential of yeah, and I, um, one of the previous episodes, I chatted to Kathy Hackle, and uh, yeah. like she's a friend of yours, and I think she worked with you he, on that piece of work. Yeah, the, uh, the VR product. Yeah, right, amazing, and like yeah, I'm su super excited. What, what's kind of interesting historically about uh, VR and AR is that I think what is it in, uh, the late '60s, the Sword of Damocles, that was actually right. within the purview of the U.S. Air Force, I think, actually, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's all the stuff comes full circle in a way. Right. Like, I mean, you mentioned Rand before, yeah. As well, and it's just it's kind of interesting that the futures way of thinking, right? A lot of it was initially about strategic deterrence and nuclear deterrence and all that stuff, and that's really ebbed and flowed over the past three or four decades. And so the this pandemic moment that we had last year, I think, jump started uh, a bit more of an appetite that we're seeing of folks, and maybe a, a bit more of an appreciation. So in a way, um, as terrible as COVID has been from a futurist perspective, it's probably been the single biggest catalyst for actually yeah. reframing people's uh, uh, you know, mental, uh, mental infrastructure on accepting how different the future can be. Yeah, and I think people are taking sort of uh, the idea that something bad can happen. <laughs> so instead of this... Yeah. Yeah, this positive view. I mean, I'm I'm now writing a book with Bloomsbury, and we don't have a name yet. But I wrote a chapter in a book called "The Future Starts Now," called "Start with Dystopia," about imagining something terrible in the future because we made terrible decisions in, on the journey to get there. Whether you know we we chose technology over humanity, and we're colonizing the world with you know a rigid way of working, or whether that's you know policy that allows polluters to continue, or or you know, nuclear weaponry, whatever, right? It, it's kind of interesting um, when we think about that. And uh, I think for me as well, and th this has come up as a discussion point with every interview I've done in the past three or four weeks, uh, which has been you know, so, some of the interviews as, as we sort of come out of the back end of the pandemic, certainly in North America, is that everyone is really busy and everyone's having really big conversations with big companies. I mean, I've worked with the Bank of Canada. I've worked with Google and uh, you know American Express, and 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 these people weren't knocking on the door, you know, uh, before. And now they're like, you know, you know, what is going to happen next? And you know, there's some bad news out there because things like pandemics are going to happen again. I've got a 10-month-old kid, and I, I think you've got kids as well. They're going. This is the first pandemic that they're really going to live through. That's this sort of global and. It's likely, you know, once I talk about once in a decade pandemics, I look around the room or on Zoom, I should say, and everyone's kind of disappointed. And it's like, well, when you start to look at the data and zoonotic diseases and there's about seven million coronaviruses out there in nature and how that could jump into the human. Everyone's like, what? what? And it's like too much. But I mean, what? I mean, let, let's sort of switch this conversation into sort of looking at, you know, global challenges and issues. I mean, what do you think the most pressing challenges, uh, what, you know, what do you see as the most pressing challenges in the world right now? Gosh, that's, that's, that's such a long list. But <laughs> I think to your point, I mean, if, yeah. I, would, if I would distill something out of that, um, I think we've actually fallen into uh, sort of a dangerous, a dangerous way of thinking where 
you know, there are a lot of, uh, there's just a lot of discussion about how, how globalization is, is eventually going to save everything and that the, right. uh, you know, that, that we're going to keep moving towards a more connected world. And, I, you know, I don't think that that's invalid on its face, but I think what we failed to see and where we are not uh, very adept in interpreting some of these signals that are out in the environment is actually looking at how powerful the force of ideology really is right. in the 21st century and, and how much of a driving force it is where we've sort of, at least in the United States and the West, we've sort of declared that dead at the end of the Cold War. Um, and, and, you know, and there's so much debate that's gone back and forth. But one of the things that I'm working on and that's going to be eventually part of um, of, of, of uh, my book research and project that's uh, on the horizon is really looking at, you know, how do we how do we think differently about, you know, security issues and how do we think different? How do you know how do we look at what kind of ideologies are out there and how do ideas, uh, you know, become material in, in a very tangible way, you know, that that affects our international political system uh, and ultimately security, national security. And, uh, you know, there's some really interesting research out there if you dig into things and see that, you know, from, from 2017, just I'm quoting some research from the, uh, the Conflict Research Center in, in Heidelberg right. So right now, the biggest source of violent conflict and war actually has not been the economy or anything else. It's actually been ideology. Right. And, you know, when you and that's one of the things that I, I like to talk about. And a lot of times it elicits some uh, raised eyebrows, at least in defense circles, because that's not what we're used to thinking. Um, but it's important because we're seeing that even, you know, in things like some of the domestic dynamics that are happening uh, that we've seen. I mean, uh, this period that we've had uh, in the United States where we've seen now just lots of, I think, on both sides of the political spectrum, um, you know, just lots of very uh, sort of an echo chamber of extreme type opinions uh, that are getting out there unfiltered. And, you know, that has very tangible and real effects when we talk about misinformation and disinformation. And it's also the, the grouping of people with the same ideologies and the momentum that gets behind that as well. The, the, you know, we reach critical mass. I was, I was watching a, a, a sort of an interview with a, someone that was a spy inside Al-Qaeda for the British government. He'd, got, he'd gotten caught and he'd sort of got out of Al-Qaeda after some of the, uh, the, the, the very first bombings that happened in Africa. And he, you know, I don't want to be a part of that or whatever, but like he was you know, just saying that at the beginning... It was a ragtag group of people, but at some point it gets galvanized. And then, you know, it's ideology and then it's people that subscribe and it's people that are willing to undertake action. I mean, it, it, it's almost, you know, you can also, also um, turn that lens. And I always tell my clients to look at organized crime as well, because they're with within a family or people that can be seen as a family that, that operate um, in their own way with their own rules and there is an ideology there and they operate in in very interesting ways as well um, I mean I talk about things um, geopolitically like water food energy as being some of the biggest sort of areas of contention in the world especially between sort of the east and west as well yeah absolutely and I think even where we're we, it's more more uncomfortable for many of us in the West to have this conversation is something like, you know, democracy promotion, actually right. being an ideology and right. Or an out, an out, uh, you know, an implication, right. A, a consequence uh, of something just assuming that uh, democracy is readily transferable to any country in the world. 
uh, you know, that's a dangerous proposition and it's, it's, it's cost quite a bit in, uh, in terms of blood and treasure. And so understanding those dynamics and how those interactions between things like, you know, socio-political elites and the general population, right. And, uh, you know, the control apparatuses of the state, how all these things actually resonate together and, and, and really advance this ideology without us even really seeing it and understanding how it happens. Um, it, it, it quickly gets ahead of us and we're living through, uh, what I really see today as a very uh, ideological competition across the globe. Yeah, and it's about ownership as well, and it's ownership of supply and the supply chains. I mean, we saw the Suez Canal crisis that happened recently. Six, one, one ship, six days, was it? Nearly 400 ships uh, backlog, uh, nearly $10 billion in, in global trade that was halted. I mean, we, we kind of... we. We're not getting better at this, you know, over the past few hundred years. We're kind of stuck in the same old problems that exist, which is, you know, getting from A to B, goods from A to B, distribution of wealth, the idea of, you know, democratic systems in the face of totalitarian regimes and whatever. So, I mean, the current situation and then looking to a further future you know, pe- people are asking, you know, what's happening in 100 or 200 years? Are we suddenly going to reach this Star Trek future where everyone's part of a galactic alliance? There's no ego. The traumas of the world have been healed. And then suddenly, you know, th- there's peace, love and harmony, right? Well, what's funny is, I mean, right to this point, you know, you, you talked earlier about Jim Dater at Hawaii. And yeah. I think probably one of his most profound quotes that's very apt to what we're discussing right now is this idea that any useful statement about the future should appear to be ridiculous. Right. Um, you know, and so this is this is what we're really talking about is actually, yeah, we can't just discount what might sound quite ridiculous to us today uh, when we talk about 50, 60, 70 years or 100 years into the future. Um, yeah, it, it is going to be ridiculous. And if we're going to have a meaningful discussion about taking advantage of opportunities or the challenges that we could face. We've got to be prepared to have that kind of conversation and really, you know, have a a serious mental palate cleansing, if you will, right. And getting past some of the limitations that we have, because, you know, we're not going to get creative by looking at, you know, just trend analysis of today and the expected. And it's interesting as well, when you look at companies, like some companies think that they're bulletproof and things aren't going to change. The big example is Blockbuster, right? They just got too big for their boots. They didn't move fast enough. They laughed at Netflix out of the room. And now Netflix is winning Grammys and Oscars and taking over the movie industry. And now Amazon's doing that with their purchase of MGM. And all of this, and um, back to a conversation I had uh, just last week with Dr. Joseph Voros, who added preposterous, the idea of preposterous futures um, to the futures cone, right? That is, that that ridiculous, preposterous sort of idea is really valid and it's worth the conversation. I sit down with clients and say, what if your business is no longer, you know, the dominant player in your sector? What if, what if there are five companies that are around you and they're eating your business and suddenly, you know, you're literally facing bankruptcy in the face, right? And everyone... A whole bunch of people will laugh off in the room and a whole bunch of people will look, you know, seriously at it and then sort of discard it very quickly from the conversation, right? Right. Like, hey, okay, that's good, Nick. Let's go to lunch now. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, that's good. That's a fantastic conversation. Love the work that you do. I've got a budget to do, right? So, yeah. Well, you know, sometimes that's where we have to talk about, right? There, there, there's, there are some virtuous worst case scenarios that really deserve attention. And, you know, the classic example that everybody looks at, and I think futurists often quote is, you know, Royal Dutch Shell in the late 60s, early 70s, where they, they were able to really leverage scenario development and scenario planning and they were able to compete better than their, uh, you know, than some of their other peer companies because they had done some of that hard work about imagining, yeah, what happens if the bottom drops out? You know, what happens right. if oil prices go here? Um, you know, and this just, you know, we can't necessarily always fault folks for not thinking that way because and this is part of the discussion of we want to democratize futures more because we need to have more folks, especially in corporate boardrooms. And I'm convinced that one of the things we're going to see in the future, we're going to see a lot more chief futurist positions in the C-suite. Right. Uh, I have this conversation very a lot with many, many companies, with many individuals. And I think there's just a recognition that after what we've gone through this year, people see the value. They see that we want to have folks that understand how to do this. We want to be able to go and every company now is recognizing like we need to have not only just a plan B, C, but we need to have a plan F, <laughs> we need to have right. A plan B, right? I mean, we need to really think carefully about, you know, how all of these issues, not just in our core area of expertise, but the things that we're uncomfortable with, how are those going to come back and then affect our bottom line? Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting you talk about the, the, the chief futurist in the C-suite. I mean, people like you and I almost exclusively chat to the C-suite these days. <laughs> We're not talking to like a manager with a good idea to do some futures work. We're we're right in the jugular. We're we're going in and we're saying, "Hey, you you gotta see this. You gotta think about this because this is the future of your business and the future. You know the futures that are going to be wrought up, uh, upon the people that you you service and that you provide product to as well. But I mean, you know, if if we look around at all the CEOs in the world, where, where are the real futurists there? I mean. I mean, you could, you, and I hate to say this, you know, Elon Musk, you know, it's got a pretty good view of a, a long view. And a lot of the stuff that he says, especially on Twitter, is kind of ridiculous. But a lot of this is it's is like really, you know, you know, short futures work that he's, he's doing. You know, he's, he's willing to say that there's civilizations on Mars and water, and it all appears to be a bit crazy. And, you know, and he gets in trouble for this as well. So there's that balance between, you know, opening the door and saying, this is what we think the future of our company is and the futures for the people that we operate and sort of keeping it inside for the goodness of the company. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, to me, it's a fun, it's an exciting period that we're living in because we're seeing, I think a lot of, you know, sort of these, these personality based, uh, you know, you've got, you've got this attachment to this vision that, you know, the CEO is, is bringing in, you know, it's, attached to the identity of a particular company. And, uh, you know, I just think the more we get this dialogue out there and we, the more we have, uh, I think, you know, futurist type thinking across the board, it's just going to benefit all sectors. And I mean, even something like our educational system, you know, we this year really gave us some pause about the future of education and the future of healthcare. I mean, and it's just, you could, you could add the future of and just, you know, add and fill in the blank. I mean, right. everything had this reset. So I think the fact that, we, that we've got some, uh, you know, frankly, some forward thinking CEOs out there that aren't afraid to maybe talk about those ridiculous kind of futures that we talked about, I think that's, that bodes well, uh, you know, for what we're trying to do in, in this 
futurist narrative uh, that we talk about, frankly. Yeah, I, I truly believe that foresight and futurism uh, as a discipline is going to be the next great movement forward within you know, design, advertising, consultancy. I come from management consultancy back in the day. I worked, you know, um, on, on various different sides, you know, in government and, and telecommunications and whatever. Um, and it's interesting as I start to see it and uh, as I start to chat to people in the think tank at futurist.com, it's just going to be the hot area. And um, I, I think that we've always been a little bit in, in the corners of the room is like, let's ask the crazy guy that scares us about the future, right? And now it's, uh, no, we're in the center of the room giving the presentation, um, showing the reference points, showing that what we were talking about 10 years ago was actually very valid, whether that's climate change, you know, uh, the water shortages, supply chain, and whatever, because people kind of don't believe it in, until they see that as well. I mean, do, do, do you notice that there's a difference between sort of the organizations, non-military organizations that you work with and sort of working with the, within the US Air Force? I mean, are there some distinct differences in how people are thinking or the horizons, uh, the, the sort of uh, where the horizons lay for them? Well, yeah, I'll give you a great example. I mean, as you talked about before, so when I came to DC in 2019 and I introduced this idea of let's create a futures and foresight team that has this charter to look out beyond you know 20 years and also if we're going to talk about something as multifaceted as force design right and defense futures and all these kinds of, of issues that are going to go together to building uh, this future force we can't just rely on the status quo and just on one particular vision of the future right so when i talked about this though initially i mean it was kind of like what's he talking about why yeah. don't isn't somebody already working on this? Isn't somebody in the intelligence community working on that? I'm sure somebody's got it. And then you say, well, do you want to outsource this to somebody who isn't in your organization? Or do you want a very prescriptive, yeah. you want to have a very focused, uh, you know, futurist type analysis that tailors uniquely to your needs? And, you know, so I was given a little bit of uh, artistic license, if you will. But then interestingly enough, you know, March 2020 happens. And then it's like, as you said, it's now, now you're no longer on the fringes. Now it's Jake, get in my office now and let's start talking about this stuff. And, and right. so all of a sudden, but even then, right, even then there were still, and there still are, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I mean, there's still a lot of skepticism, I think in the entrenched bureaucracy for really understanding the value proposition of what this is, because what we're talking about, Nick, and something like, you know, the defense establishment, it's a cultural catalyst. Right. Uh, it's it's true. I and mean, there's a lot of lip service that gets paid to things like innovation and right. All these kinds of buzzwords that get thrown around. But to be very honest, I mean, you know, there's a lot of innovation theater that's going on and, and less right. Really getting at how we think, um, you know, cutting a particular program or divesting of something isn't necessarily innovation. Right. And so I think as you know, the way that I would measure success is by how we are affecting people's ability to disrupt the status quo and, and really uh, communicate this idea of democratizing futures and then just thinking beyond the tyranny of the now. And that's, it sounds intuitive, you know, it's really not, it's a challenge. 
you know tyranny of the now it keeps coming up in every conversation that i have and i i, I really love that i chatted to low stamhoff about that i chatted to joseph Voros about this and and now you as well and and that's popped up it's interesting to see futures as a cultural catalyst as well i mean it's like an awakening uh, and you know, I, I tell a story about how I sort of sat sat in, 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 in my bedroom a few years ago and it was 5 a.m. and I was sat in a chair in the corner and my partner at the time looked over and said, are you okay? It's like, I've learned too much. And, and you're sort of, you're suddenly the ideas are swirling around in your head. And it's like, you know, it's like Neo, Neo from the Matrix where you've literally just plugged yourself in and you say, I know Kung Fu. But that's just the beginning of the journey, right? Do you need to just adjust something there, Jake? Oh, sorry. I just got to uh, plug my, uh, sorry. My, That's uh, all right. That's all right. We can, we, you know, I, I, can, I, you know, the magic of editing. So yeah, it, I, had to, it, I had to plug in my, uh, yeah, my, no, sorry. it's, it's all good, man. Like we can, we can do that. Okay. Um, okay. Let me come back to just seeing where we are as well. Um, oh, <laughs> I'm sort of, sorry about that, uh, no, that's all right, man. I just like, um, support this and some, okay. So, I mean, you know, coming back to a couple of things you said, I mean, there is skepticism. Um, futures seem ridiculous, which fuels that skepticism. This tyranny of the now, and, and it's because people are busy and everyone's shouting at people for they need the budget now, they need to get projects delivered, they need to mitigate risks and issues on the ground. Today, the, the power of the now, as well as the tyranny of the now as well. So they're, they're in stark sort of contrast and conflict with each other. But... I mean, how do, how do we just go, how do we break that? How do we break that mindset of, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter, you know, I'm going to be dead or like, it, it, you know, I, I hear this a lot and I've, I've faced people that have said this about climate change and about, you know, uh, automation and about all these other things. Yeah, I think the best way that I've found to communicate this and what's been most effective is phrasing the question differently. Um, yeah, you you might not be around or you might no longer be in this current job and maybe it's not your concern, but what are the costs of inaction? What are the real tangible costs of either not taking action or even worse, deciding not to decide and sort of just, you know, running out the clock? Um, there are so many examples. There are libraries filled with examples of either companies that failed to do that or you know, even worse, where the cost is, is, is so much more critical from a national security perspective, um, where now you're, you're putting lives unnecessarily on the line or you're making strategic mistakes uh, that could impact the international standing of your country. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the stakes are actually high and I think communicating it in those terms and then being able to, and this is where this, the education piece comes in, right, Nick? So you've got to have a background and you've got to understand the insights of history so that you can make those connections to the now and then innovate from the future. And so I think that's the way that you, you've got to start adopting that lexicon and be able to really uh, have, uh, I think, a, a comprehensive narrative uh, to capture people's attention and, and get them thinking. And that's where I think we've been successful in doing that now, where there is, you know, we've got people using words like weak signals and emerging trends, and we've got right. people understanding what horizon scanning is and why they need to do that. And now when you combine that with AI enhanced tools and, um, you know, all sort of, you know, databases where we can 
we can now search over this, you know, in huge, huge uh, swaths of information. Instead of having 20 people looking, we could have one person. So I think that we're going to get better at this. Uh, and I, my hope is that the momentum will continue and that we'll keep producing or really educating futurist leaders. Yeah, and, and it's about being raw and visceral with the with the narrative and no holds barred. And you know, I, I'm writing a lot about dystopian planning. Uh, so, I mean, do you play that into into what you do? Like, um, he's not just the worst case scenario. Here's the worst case world that everyone's going to be living in. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is the other thing. I think this is a great point you bring up because we tend to want to always imagine the future as something better. Right. And that's certainly, I mean, that's a great aspirational future to have. I think we all want that. We would agree that's that's the outcome we want. But there's definitely a lot of value in looking at these dystopian futures. I mean, and that's why, you know, in Manoa school lexicon, right, this collapse, right, this systemic collapse scenario becomes important or, right, a, or, a, or a discipline type scenario where you can see not just the collapse itself, but understand like, what went into that. And then what does that world look like? Who are the winners and losers in that world? And then are there opportunities despite the dystopian chaos that you're living through, um, right? I mean, a lot, there's, there's so many variables that go into that. And so I think that's important because it really gives people that gut check of right. thinking differently and imagining how they might react or how their company would react, how their government would react, how they as individuals would react. And consequences are typically delayed, right? So we make a decision to that. I mean, you talk about raw Dutch shell. Great scenario planning, whatever. Perfect. Uh, there was some research that came out of MIT and Australian researchers as well that said, you know, by 2020, we're going to be in a pretty bad place if we carry on this. You know, so, you know, people like raw Dutch shell ignored that. You know, that wasn't that wasn't good for them and their business. And I, I think it was, uh, it was Shell that I think about a month ago just got handed... You know, um, pretty bad news in the, in the Dutch courts that they have to suddenly, you know, deal with this and the ripples that go through the entire, you know, fossil fuels community and the people that are like carbon management companies. Now it's this 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 strange, but I I think maybe it, it's almost like we need contracts of consequences in a way. That okay, are you, okay, if you're saying this and you're saying that this isn't going to happen, this contract lasts let's say 500 years, <laughs> sign yeah. this because you're going to come back and you're going to be part of the reparation of this as well. And then I, it gets I, serious, I, right? I can only imagine how many, uh, how many lawyers would be excited about something like that in this country. <laughs> but, but it's interesting when you start to look to Asia and you yeah. look at the companies there, like you look at SoftBank, um, Masayoshi Son has got a 300 year strategy. Uh, a friend of mine and a futurist out there talks about protopian futures, Monica Bilskite. Yep. Um, you know, she says, you know, Asia, Asia, places like China, think of futures in thousands of years. You know, they think of this in millennia, right? I, yeah, that's an important piece. And that's why I think when we talk about a cultural catalyst, it's not only the corporate culture, but it's also our intellectual culture of how we decide to frame the future and what that means. And I think if you if you were to pull and we've done research on this and we've seen, especially with clients in Asia, yeah. where the perspective on what the future means and that time horizon is, I mean, it's completely very and not, you know, and an interesting example here, when we ran a, a, a war game here, uh, and it was just interesting to see if you asked people what time horizon are we playing to? And some people would give you one number, 
another people, somebody else would give you a different number. And before you know it, all of a sudden you've got, you are like, wait a minute, we've got 20 different participants who have 20 different ideas of which year we're playing to and what the, right? So, I mean, that's important. Uh, yeah. We, we want to make sure that, so if, if that's one small example, imagine, you know, in something as nebulous as the government, right? How important it is if you're going to build anticipatory governance, right. you've, got to, you've got to even have some consensus on the time horizon. Yeah, and, and you, as futurists, we almost don't want consensus because that lack of consensus is is the fuel for the right. discussions, right? And out, out the bottom of that, discussing whether it's going to be twenty fifty or twenty one hundred is actually it, it's actually really valid, even though it does seem, as you say, sort of you know, government's nebulous. But the idea of of you know fifty years difference in time is fairly nebulous as well i mean i wasn't born 50 years ago 48 years to be honest but like you know if i if i look to like 1970 and i look at that world then and some and, and you could say okay i just had a chat to douglas engelbart and he's got this personal computer and then i, I chatted to the guy from deck and the guy from deck said that no one's going to have a computer at home and then this guy from the future came in and said that everyone's got a supercomputer in their pocket. It, it, that's the difference to me of 50 years in a way and, and sometimes framing you know, the progress that can be made. Imagine, I was reading, uh, I was reading uh, sort of some social posts and some blogs and, and someone said something pretty poignant. It's like, you know, the lockdown wouldn't have happened if we, if we didn't have the internet, right? I mean, I'm chatting to you, you're down in DC, I'm up here in Toronto, I've been able to do all of my business and build business and do, you know, business development. And, you know, paper and pen and, 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 and a phone w wouldn't have cut it, right? Um, if I was locked down, I wouldn't be in the library because there'd be no internet, right? So yeah, go figure. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and this is where I think the question becomes, so where do we go from here? And you're already seeing, right? I mean, if you just read any of the business papers now, People are quitting their jobs because they don't want to go back to the office. Right. And so, you know, what I hope that comes out of this is you know, you've got some people that are coming out saying, no, you know, everyone needs to go back and that's it. But you're not going to put this back into the box now. Uh, <laughs> the cat is out of the bag. And I think there's, you know, there's got to be a hybrid model moving forward. And especially in places like the government as well. Why are we moving people all over the country, you know, in different assignments when we could allow them to do the same job from any location they want? Right. I mean, what's 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 wrong with a digital nomad model for government? I mean, I think that that's other, because to be honest, if you're not doing that, you're just you're not attracting a lot of the best talent that you can get. So this is this clash between that old thing and this futurist way of thinking of embracing a lot of this stuff. And you're right. You know, I've actually felt that during the pandemic and during this era of Zoom and, and digital transformation that we all went into, I actually connected with many more people internationally that I just wouldn't have had the time to, to, cause I can't travel to all of these places all the time. Um, but now everybody was conditioned to doing it. So it actually, in some cases, uh, you know, increased our communication globally, uh, than this, this, the previous status quo. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and every time is time feels different digitally as well. I mean, I can deliver a 45 minute keynote in 30 minutes, as I found out over the past few weeks. And, 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 and clients are like, but you were supposed to speak for 45 minutes. It's like, yeah, I spoke really quickly. It's, it's a side effect of the digital world. It's like, well, you know, and some people get upset and some people are okay because 
the goodness is still there and the promise of of what was to be <laughs> delivered is still there so i mean i just want to wrap up the interview you know you, you said so where do we go from here and i think that's a really good um sort of end end to this conversation and we're gonna have more conversations and i really hope i get down to to dc and we can go and yeah. grab a coffee or something at some point jake because there's so many people I've connected with as well, like dozens of people that are in- incredible thinkers. And I think that it, it's really important. Um, if people wanted to learn a little bit more about what you're doing, I mean, where, where can people uh, go online to find out a little more about uh, the work that you do, Jake? So I've got a lot of information on what I'm doing and where I'm speaking and different engagements on LinkedIn. So if yeah. they go to jake.sotiriatis, they'll see me on uh, LinkedIn. We've also got uh, links to all of our reports that have been published uh, that are on unclassified and, and accessible to the public. Uh, so that's the best place to find me for uh, you know, for all updates and uh, and professional uh, happenings. So. Yeah, and and the big idea is you know a strategic foresight becomes a federal capability as well, right, Jake? So uh... yeah, absolutely. I think I think we're seeing a lot of momentum in that direction. I'm really really excited. We're working with so many other government agencies and also bringing in the private sector and bringing yeah. in universities. So uh, yeah, this is here to stay. And I'm really excited about where it's going to go. Yeah. Um, little do people know and, uh, for the listeners, uh, Canada actually has a chief futurist. Uh, his name is Peter Padbury. And uh, um, there's a there's a government mental organization called Foresight um uh, policy horizons so if you don't know about that jake go and check it out um they're, they're a very small and over, overworked department though right so more people need to get involved yeah and that's awesome i mean and you can see this throughout the world this is where i think we uh, in the united states you know need to move faster you've got that's a great example of canada you've got countries in europe you know uh you've got the greek government has a foresight team you've got the european union using foresight nato you've got uh the scandinavian i mean there's in, in asia we talked about i mean so there's there are there are countries that actually have legislation on the books where if something hasn't been future proofed uh you know it doesn't get a vote right yeah. so there 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 there's a lot of uh, momentum on yeah. this and i think that we're going to start seeing that pendulum swing uh, in in the same direction here in the United States. Yeah, I think Peru's a great example yeah. of that as well. Just recently, um, yeah, I think that's it falls into that category. You can't do anything until you've gone some, through some future proofing. The New, New Zealand web uh, governmental website's got an amazing amount of resources. It's good. It's great to see. It's really heartening to see um, people like yourself working in you know with organizations working within the U.S. Air Force to really create this open futures culture. Um, Jake, it's been absolutely uh, a, a huge honor and a pleasure for me to chat to you. And Dr. Jake Sotiriadis, I'd like to say thank you for your time. And uh, I look forward to speaking again soon. Thanks for having me, Nick. It was a pleasure.